The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in the book of Jonah, chapter 4. We've been going through uh, the series on the book of Jonah, and this is uh, week number 6, I believe. And so we're going to be in the last chapter of Jonah. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we have uh, several on the shelf in the back there by the joy box. And so uh, if you need a Bible of your very own, you don't have one, please take that one with you. Uh, It's our gift to you. Uh, I want to start by just simply acknowledging uh, a a text in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 9, it says, For whoever lacks these qualities, and and this is what he's talking about. He's talking about qualities like a brotherly love and uh, affection for one another and able to to overcome uh, things of godliness and steadfastness and self-control, and you supplement your faith with these things. And he says, if you lack these things, these qualities... It's possible to become so nearsighted that he's become blind. And the way that we become blind is, is, it says this, it says we become blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There is a disease that plagues every person. There's there's a disease that we struggle with that we fight with that I that I fight with uh, if you're honest and you can acknowledge that there's there's things that I see in myself there's things that I know I do and this this disease most of the time is not even recognized by as as a disease really and Jonah has this type of disease and it's a, it's a sickness, really. And in this chapter, in, in Jonah chapter 4, we're going to see the full effects of this, of this great disease. Uh, and if we were honest with ourselves, we could probably see a lot of these symptoms in our own lives. Now, let me, let me go back and tell you what I'm talking about. If you remember that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And if you don't know about Nineveh, Nineveh is basically Jonah's enemies, all right? Okay, so Jonah was a part of Israel. Jonah was a part of a great nation, a godly nation, and Nineveh was a, was a disastrous city, a city full of people that would kill people and murder people, particularly Israel, all right? And so think of these two, these two countries, these two people groups that are constantly at war, and God tells Jonah, hey, I want you to go, and I want you to tell them to repent, and Jonah's like, no thank you, right? So he turns, he basically gets on a ship and goes the opposite direction, all right? And so God caused a supernatural storm to arise on the, uh, around the ship that he was on, right? So much so that the sailors and the shipmates, they get, they get panicked. They get kind of scared. They think they're going to die. And so they take all the cargo, they throw it overboard. Finally to find out, Jonah comes forth and says, hey, it's my fault, God's after me. God wants me. God told me to do something. I'm disobeying God. I'm going the other direction. And you know what the, 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 the sailors do? They, they actually wait and don't throw them overboard right away. They actually try to fight a little bit with God. And so finally, they're like, okay, we can't win this battle. They take Jonah, whoosh, throw him in the water, and immediately the storm calms. And they're freaked out by it. Like they throw him in, he's out there in the water for like one second, the storm ceases, the wave ceases, and everything happens. And they're all, they're all shocked by, 
that, that happening. And then all of a sudden, a giant fish comes up and eats Jonah. Just like that. I mean, if they weren't panicked before, they're panicking now, right? And so they're there. The fish swallows Jonah. The Bible says that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights until finally he cries out to God. And he's crying out to God in the belly of the fish, and it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. We see that salvation came to Jonah even before he was brought out of the fish. Salvation, you see, it, it belongs to the Lord in such a way that, that your circumstances may not change. Your, your, your surroundings may not change. Your, your life around you, the things that are happening around you may not change. But when you find hope in God, when you find strength in the Lord, it says salvation belongs to the Lord. In the belly of the fish, Jonah says, I found salvation. And then the fish vomits him up. Right? That's what it says. It says the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out on dry land. And so Jonah, he's there on dry land, probably covered in some slime. Right? He kind of cleans himself off. He throws off his fear. He throws off his guilt. He throws off everything that could slow him down. And he starts heading toward the city. And he goes in the city. The Bible says that the city is three days in length to walk. I don't know how far that is, but it's a long walk. And he probably goes a third of the way in. And he begins to preach an eight-word message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And the message, it can be translated like this. It says, in 40 days, you will either be destroyed or changed forever. And so you know what the people of Nineveh did, right? He preaches eight words, and all of a sudden, it says that the entire city repents. 120,000 people, all of a sudden, it says, from the greatest to the least, puts on humility, puts on repentance. They close themselves in sackcloth and ashes as a sign to God to say, we're sorry. We can't believe where we've come. And so the whole city repents from the king to the cows, everyone crying out to God, fasting to God so that God would show them mercy. And then after the repentance, look in chapter 3, verse 10. It's what we just read. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now look in chapter 4. But it, what's it? Not bringing destruction. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is, is this not what I said that would happen? This is not, this is why I fled to Tarshish. He says, this is not what I told you when I was in my old country. That's why I made haste to run the other way. Let me ask you a question. What's Jonah doing here? I mean, in his anger, in his frustration, like what, what is Jonah doing right here? He's like, God, is that not what I told you would happen? Is that not what I knew you would do? What did you? What is Jonah doing? Listen, he's justifying his sin to God. He's justifying his disobedience. He's justifying why he went the other way. And I don't know about you, but I mean, we never do that. Do we? 
I mean, we never justify our behavior toward God. And so he's justifying his sin. And, and so Jonah, he may have consented to obey God. He, 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 may, he may have known that he couldn't fight God and win. He knew that, that his, he couldn't go the other way. God would finally get his way. But his heart, like in his heart, like he still, he still disagrees. Many of us, we justify our disobedience to God. So whether God tells us to do something and we don't do it, or God tells us not to do something and we do it, those are both sins, by the way. We justify it toward God. We're quick to say, well, God, you see, I knew that it was going to turn out this way. That's why I didn't respond the way that you wanted me to respond. That's why I didn't walk in the path that you wanted me to walk. That's why I'm not doing what you tell me to do because I've got a disease. I've got a disease so nearsighted. Many Christians, they've been conformed to a pattern of religion but never really transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. See, we'll do what God tells us to do because we're afraid. We'll do a behavior, we'll walk in a certain way because, you know, if we don't, God might swallow us with a fish. But in the end, we've never really been transformed by the Spirit of God. I mean, we know God, we hear God, but we continue to justify our self-driven behavior. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. This is my life. This is my time. This is my effort. This is my voice. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so, God, you want me to go there? I'm not going to do that because that's out of my comfort zone. We continue to justify our own self-driven behavior. And Jonah's angry about it. And he begins to justify his disobedience. Listen to me. God, God is big enough for you to be angry with him. I don't know if you grew up in church or not. I don't know what you've heard about God. But listen, God is big enough to handle that. He's strong enough. He's not offended by that. Right? He doesn't need your approval. He's God. And so he's angry with God. He's shouting with God. He's telling God, listen, God is big enough. God is strong enough. You can be angry with him. You can be honest with him. And some of you, you've come to this place, and you're trying to walk with God. But in reality, you've never been honest with him. You've never really been honest with your emotions. You've never been honest with how you feel. Jonah knows God and says that he's exceedingly angry. He probably knows he shouldn't be, but he's honest. He says, I'm angry. And, and so God is big enough to handle all your anger. God is big enough to handle all your fears. God is big enough to handle all your, your feelings and your emotions. Those, those things that you've never really had, had the guts to tell anybody else. God can handle that. God can take that. God can receive that. God's big enough. God's strong enough. Because, because look in verse 2. Not only is he big enough, not only is he strong enough, but it says that I knew you were a gracious God. Listen, when you give all your emotions to God, it says that he's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. Some of you think that God is just this angry judge in the sky looking to pound you whenever you step out of line. Listen, 
He's gracious to you. He's merciful. It says that he's slow to anger. Oh, thank God for that. Right? There's no hope for me if he's not slow to anger. It says that he's slow to anger. He's, he's abounding in steadfast love. And he's relenting from disaster. Listen, if you feel like you can't be honest with anybody else, if you, if you feel like you can't even look at yourself in the mirror and be honest with you, you can be honest with God. He already knows. He already knows how you feel. And when you do, you'll find grace. You'll find mercy. You'll find a God that is slow to anger. And you will find a God that is abounding in steadfast love. And you will find a God that is slow to bring destruction. Look at verse 3. You can be straight with God. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful God and so to anger and bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I can't take it anymore. Take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. It's where we start to see Jonah's disease. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? You see, Jonah has a disease of idolatry. There's something that he values, something that he longs for more than his relationship with God. And he can't take it anymore. I want this so badly. I need this so badly. I want to see this outcome so badly. I can't take it anymore. God, would you just let me die? It's better to die than to live let me just review with you what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you build your identity on anything other than God. Typically, it's whatever causes you the most pain. So what causes you the most pain? What causes you the most fear? What causes you the most stress? That will start to reveal your greatest idol. What keeps you up at night that you just, you just have to have, that has to be done or else your life is in ruins? What is that thing? In Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. You see, Jonah's idol was that he loved his identity among his people. I mean, imagine the headlines. He goes back to his hometown, right? 120,000 Ninevites, repent, come to God. What? Jonah, the prophet, the man of God, he's the one that's, that's accountable for that. I did that. I went, I told them to repent. They did. What? There, might, there are enemies, right? He has this idolatry. He has this identity problem that he, he loves his status among the people of Israel. He loves that he is a leader of a prosperous nation. That feels good to him. He likes that. And the Ninevites, they threaten his identity. They threaten who he is. They threaten, they threaten him because his identity could be shattered. So he hates them. He hates the Ninevites. They, they threaten to take from him what he loves so much. We're all defined by something. 
you know, there's something that will define us. What is it for you? What defines you? What marks your identity? When people look at you, what do they see? What defines who you are? What defines your identity? Where do you find your self? It's this, it's this internal conversation where you tell yourself, I have worth because fill in the blank. I'm valuable because I fill it in. I'm worthy because, well, I'm a good dad. That's where I find my value. I'm valuable because I'm a good mom and I take care. I'm, 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 I've got value. I've got worth because I'm a good provider. I have worth because I'm a good protector. I have worth because I'm, I'm, I'm good at my job. I have worth and people around me see me as valuable because I can bring something to the table. I, I'm valuable because I'm a good person. I'm valuable. I have worth because I'm successful in school and I'm smart. I have worth and I'm, I'm valuable because I'm a great athlete. I have worth and I have value because I fill in the blank. What defines your identity? What is that blank for you? What is that thing that constantly drives you? Listen, when I was growing up, I, I, I struggled so much with this, this weight and this feeling that I could never please my parents. My parents separated when I was young. I was probably eight years old in the third grade. And I always struggled. It was like this, it was like this cloud or this, this message that played in my head that I was never good enough, that I could never please my parents. Listen, as a boy, particularly my dad, I wasn't, I wasn't good behaving. I wasn't, I wasn't a good student. Right, I knew that when the report card come, I, I, I never measured up. And I realized later that my, my father, particularly, really valued um, athletic excellence. I mean, he, I mean he, was, he was an athlete. He would play sports, even, even in his 40s. I remember he played leagues and stuff like that. I mean, he would compete, and he would run, and he would play softball and basketball, all those things. He was good at them, and he really valued athletic excellence. And so I realized that if I would excel at sports, maybe I could earn the worth and the value from my dad. And, I, and I'm built like a gazelle. <laughs> and so, speed and quickness and agility, I mean, those things came naturally to me. And I was good at them, and I, and I knew that if I could excel at this, then I would somehow please my dad. And listen, I started to get good, and I started to get successful, and I started getting the worth and the value that I always wanted from them. And I was there, and I was winning, and I was striving, and I was performing, and I was doing it. And it seemed like in that moment, my, my daddy just, he just really embraced me. And listen, not only, not only my parents, but my coaches and my teammates, I mean, they loved it. My whole school liked it. When I was good, 
not only my school, but I got recognition from other schools. There's other schools wanting me, valuing me, delighting in me. They wanted me so bad. And listen, I realized that my worth and my value was being defined by my performance. And if I couldn't perform, then I wasn't good. And if I couldn't perform, then I wasn't worthy. And I, t- I tell you, I stand today before you as a broken man who still struggles with this. Oh, I struggle so bad with this. My performance as a player, as a coach, as a father, listen, as a pastor and a preacher and, and a man, I so struggle with this. You know what that's called? It's idolatry. It's straight up idolatry. We all have something like that. Men, typically it starts with athletic status. It starts with proving yourself, maybe some sexual proudness, like if you can get a girlfriend or not, right? That's your worth. Typically it overflows into some earning capacity or, or view of success from other men. Ladies, I, I don't know, I'm not a lady, but a lot of ladies I know, they probably structure their self-worth on being wanted by somebody else. I mean, if I could just get somebody else to think that I'm pleasing, it's the same thing I struggled with. Maybe, maybe it's sexually pleasing or emotionally pleasing, or, or that's why there's such this, this push toward a body image, because if I looked a certain way, then I would be valuable to somebody. Maybe they would see me as, as beautiful. Maybe it's being independent, strong. I'm a strong mom, I'm a strong woman, I'm independent, I can do this. That's my worth and that's my value. I'm, I'm, I'm strong enough and I'm good enough. When you build your identity on anything other than what God feels about you, it's called idolatry. It's because you're feeding this God of self, this God of performance. And when your identity is built on anything than God's love and acceptance for your life, you know what happens? Is you become fearful you become upset when things don't go your way. You say things to God like, God, I would rather die than this. You're not enough. You're not what I'm after. You're not what I want. This relationship is, is second at best. What I really want, what I really long for is I want these people to accept me. I want these people to love me. I want these people to think highly of me. I want this. That's idolatry. You become fearful. You become hateful. You even become bitter. Because there's always something about you that you think makes you worthy. And anybody who threatens that, you start to hate them. And you start to resent them. Because they can take from you what you really want. Let me give you an example. There's times that I feel jealous of other pastors. other churches, I look around and I see other guys getting more applause, more people going to 
see them and hear them and participate with them. And I really, I really see my peers taking the focus off me, which is what I really want, and putting it on other things. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I delight in seeing them struggle a little bit. Can I be honest with that? Not, not because I'm a vengeful person, but, but because I get my sense of worth by being held in high regard. Seeing myself as valuable, and they, if they take the attention off me, then maybe, maybe I'd hope they'd struggle a little bit. My performance becomes idolatry when my performance is for any audience other than God. Your performance becomes idolatry when your performance is for anyone other than God. That's what idols are. And you'll do whatever you need to do to remove that thing so you can get your God. Idolatry, it leads to unforgiveness towards people that maybe hurt you. I mean, I mean some of you are walking around with, with some heavy baggage because you can't forgive someone that's hurt you, that's that's maybe taken something that you wanted. It leads to self-pity. Jonah's full of self-pity. Self-pity because, you know what? I work hard and I do a lot of things and my kids don't recognize that. My family doesn't recognize that. My parents don't recognize how much I sacrifice. My wife, my spouse, my, my family, they don't recognize how much I do for them. You know what that is? That's self-pity. And so... You see all of these in Jonah. You see, idolatry is when we desire something other than God, when we find more happiness in being successful in a career rather than our relationship with God, when we find more, more value in being rich rather than our success, our knowledge of God, our delight in, in, in being married rather than our relationship with God, our, our delight in having a relationship or maybe having that kid or maybe having that, that thing that we want so bad other than our delight in God. Jonah finds delight in the prosperity of Israel more than he delights in God. Jonah finds more delight in the destruction of his enemies more than he does in delighting in God. And so here's the question. What are you most terrified of losing? What, what are you most terrified or obsessed over obtaining? What do you want more than anything else? What drives you? What's the one thing? What's the one thing you could not imagine your life being happy without? What's the one thing? I can't imagine my life being happy without this. Without that, life would just not be worth living. And Jonah's there, and he's saying, it's better to die than to live. There's something that holds you. What brings you the most worry? What brings you the most anger? What brings about the most jealousy or hate? What brings about the most unforgiveness in your life? Now listen to me. You've got to answer those questions. Because these emotions, they're, they're valuable. They're, they're so needed because when you're honest with who you are before God, with your honest with your struggles and your angers and your unforgiveness, they help you really see into your heart. It's like, it's like these emotions are like smoke from a fire. 
You know what smoke does? Smoke kind of goes up in the air and you can see it from afar and you're like, oh look, there's smoke. There must be a fire over there. Something's burning, right? My wife is an amazing cook, so we haven't had to experience this. But my mom, on the other hand, <laughs> she's not here. She probably never listened to this message. Like, there's, there's something burning in the kitchen. How do you know? There's smoke. One time, I uh, heated up a box of chicken for 20 minutes. It was on fire. It was one of those times I uh, opened the mic. Uh, there was a few pieces of chicken left in a chicken box. And uh, I, I opened the microwave, and I put it in. And it was before you had the touch, the touch dial ones, like, oh, two minutes, start. It was, one of those, it was one of those spin ones. You, okay, we got some older people here. Okay, uh, it's one of those spin ones, right? So I put it in, and I just spun it. And you know what you do is you just stand back, and you just wait. If you, you're just counting. Instead of like going, 30 seconds right there. You just spin it, and I'm just sitting there counting, right? I'm just like, okay, in a couple seconds, I'm going to get it out. It's going to be warm in a minute, right? And then the doorbell rings. Ding dong. Oh, it's my friend. Hey, David, come on in. What's going on? How was your day? What do you want to do? And then 20 minutes later, I hear, ding. I open the thing. There's smoke pouring out of the microwave. I mean, the box is on fire. I actually grab it with some tongs, and I run through the house, out the back door, and just chuck it. (laughs) I was probably 13 years old. My mom wasn't home. (laughs) I just chuck it. Listen, emotions, when, when we're honest with where we are before God, it's like that little, that little timer. It's like the smoke signal. So you can track it back to where the fire is. Listen, I don't want my house full of smoke, right? But if it lets me know that there's a fire in the house and I can get to it and put it out before it burns up my entire family, I'm thankful for the smoke, thankful. Listen, these symptoms, what brings us the most anger? What, what frustrates us? What can we not live without? If we're honest in answering that question, it's like symptoms that we see in Jonah and ourselves, and they're warning signs from God that there is a sickness somewhere within. And so we need to pay attention to these. Now watch this, because Jonah's idolatry, he's so nearsighted that he's become blind to the grace that God has extended toward him. See, Jonah says, Jonah says, you know, I know you're a God of grace. Jonah says, I know you're a God of mercy. I I know you're a God of steadfast love. I know that you're a God that's slow to anger, and yet he's resentful of it. He resents it. He's He's actually blaming God for being those things. God, oh, man, I knew you were slow to anger. Man, I knew you were God of grace. I knew you were going to forgive them, and I hate it. He's, he's resentful of it. Let me, let me ask you, who, who in the book has received the most amazing grace? I mean, which character has received mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. I mean, which character has actually personally experienced the compassion of God? Which character in the story has received the most mercy and has experienced the steadfast love? Jonah. Jonah over and over again. 
Some of you, you need to hear this. Jonah is so resentful of God's grace because he doesn't see himself as someone who needs great grace. He's resentful of it because he doesn't see how much he needs it and how much it has been shown to you. It's like the second Peter passage. You can become so near-blighted and so blind because you've forgotten that God has passed over your former sins. He's become so blind. He doesn't think that he needs great grace. When you begin to see yourself as a worthy person, like God owes me, God owes me this, God owes me something, then you know what? Grace is shocking to you when you see it poured out on someone else. That's amazing. They did nothing to deserve that. They're actually dirty. They're really scummy. They're really a broken person. How can God save them? That's not fair. And so when we think that God owes us something, grace becomes shocking. And generosity, that doesn't come naturally. Being generous, I earned something. I deserve something. When you, when you get resentful, when God seems to be blessing other people, how do you respond when you see him blessing other people that you think probably don't deserve a blessing? Ever thought about that? Maybe you look at some people that you think are less holy than you and you see them prospering in their lives. How do you react to that? How do you react when, when you see people that you think don't deserve blessing get blessing? When people, people all around you are having children and yet you can't have children. When people all around you are getting married yet you can't find someone that would date you, when people all around you are getting all these things and you are just like, what? Are you resentful toward them? You can't even understand that they're receiving some grace. When God commands you to be generous, a lot of times we just resist it. We just say, no, you know, why God? I've earned my money. I've deserved this. I need it more than being obedient to you. I need it. This is not grace that you've given me. I've earned this. I deserve this. To be generous with this, it doesn't happen. When you see yourself as a recipient of grace, though, God's compassion becomes the most precious thing. God's love becomes the most important thing, and you become compassionate to others. How do you react when you see God bless someone that's less worthy than you? How do you react? When God's blessing you in a way that you think you ought to be blessed, what do you say? Do you say, God, why them? Why is that happening to them? Why are they getting married and not me? Why are they getting that recognition and not me? Why are they like that and not me? It's in that moment that you're demonstrating how out of touch we are with the grace of God. Have you ever seen those videos on social media or maybe YouTube or something where they do the they do the, like the generosity studies, right? They go on the streets and they, they make someone look needy or homeless or whatever. And they, they, they videotape people walking by and see how they will react. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so they come by and, you know, uh, you see different people reacting different ways to needs and different people react different ways to generosity. And, and you know what I found interesting is, is that it seems like the most homeless, the most um, culturally 
poor people seem to be the most spiritually rich and the most generous. Like, like there's a guy who, who has really nothing. Like, everything he owns is in, like, a box. And he lives, like, right next to it, right? And then he sees somebody who has great need, and he, like, gives them stuff out of the box. Here, you, here I have an extra coat. Whatever. It seems that the most, the most generous people, the, the people who are most willing to share, who give abundantly with what little that they have, they overflow with compassion, even though they have practically nothing, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen these? It's amazing to me. I begin to think about maybe, maybe they've come to a place in their life where they realize that everything they have, actually everything they own, has been given to them as a gift. Maybe they've come to a place in their life where they realize that really everything they have, they didn't earn. Everything they have has been given by grace. They realize that all they have, they did not earn any of it. Everything you have and everything you've been given is the grace of God. Everything. Everything has been given through God's grace. The person who understands God's grace toward them They're amazed by grace, and they want to demonstrate grace and generosity. Listen, if if you're here, and maybe you've grown up in church, I don't know, maybe you haven't, and you just simply simply come in and and give a tithe, and, and that's it. You just simply, oh, I know I'm supposed to do this, and so I'm going to write this thing, and I'm going to put it in. That's it. Listen, I don't think you really understand salvation. I mean, if you just simply do, not out of delight, but out of the fact that you know you ought to do it, and so, you know, I'm just going to begrudgingly give. Listen, I don't think you really know grace. I don't think you really know salvation. Jesus poured himself out completely for you. Jesus died in your place. He shed his blood. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Do you realize that if you have salvation, if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that that is a gift? That God has somehow unblinded your eyes and opened your heart so you can receive him as Lord? And that is a gift. That is a gift that God's given to you. Salvation through Christ is a gift of God. We don't earn it. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And listen, it goes beyond money. You know that? You do know that, right? I mean, it does go beyond money. And so listen, if you can't can't forgive your spouse, you probably don't know the salvation and the grace of God. If you can't forgive or you're always bitter towards your parents or your friends or your ex, you probably don't understand grace. Listen, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying compassion is easy, and I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. I'm not saying that what they did to you was right. I'm not saying that, 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 that this is going to be an easy thing. What I'm saying is that it starts with knowing the grace of God. And Jonah is in a place right now where he doesn't re- realize that he needs great grace. 
He doesn't see himself in that category. If you're like Jonah, you don't see yourself as completely guilty. Then you've probably become so nearsighted, so spiritually blind, because you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. It begins with knowing how much God has loved you. Listen, Jonah doesn't see that he is Nineveh. Jonah, he doesn't recognize that he is Nineveh. He's the one that needs great grace. He's the one that needs forgiveness. He's the one that needs to lay down himself and say, man, God, I need mercy. I need your steadfast love. You know, he probably sees his sins and Nineveh's sins in two different categories. Do you ever do that? No, you never do that. You never look at your sins and someone else's sins and think that they're, they're different. You don't do that? And so he probably looks at Nineveh and says, you know what? They're adulterers. They're idol worshipers. They're cruel. They're murderers. They steal. They're haters, right? And Jonah, he's like, I don't do any of that. But what's Jonah's sin? He just said no to God. Isn't that the root of all of our sin? He said no to God. He went the other direction. He says no to God. Listen, saying no to God is the sin that that brought all the pain and all the suffering and all the complications that we face. You saying no to God is why all the struggles that we have in our lives is because we're walking outside of God. We're holding idols other than God. We're longing for things other than what, what we want from him. And so there's no greater sin than saying no to God. And most religious people, they're like, well, you know, I don't want to burn and, uh, you know, I don't want to find myself in the belly of a whale, so, uh, you know, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to be the most religious, most dedicated person that I can be so that God doesn't harm me. And so we're be- becoming conformed to, to religious behavior, but we're never come to the point where we begin to delight in God. Hear me. Do, do you see this? That there's so many times that we just behave because we, we learn how to behave. You come into a house, you hear a message, and you say, okay, that's how I'm supposed to behave, and so I'll behave that way. But then you really never come to a point where you begin to delight and love and cherish and worship God. You just are conformed to behavior and not transformed by delighting in God. Listen, Delighting in God and loving God and forgiveness like God, it can't be produced by fear or destruction. It can only be produced by knowing grace. Jonah doesn't think he needs grace. And there's many of you sitting here and you don't think you need grace because what you've done, what you do, is just not that bad. You ever said no to God? Seeing that Jesus Christ has graciously saved you from all the ways that you say no to God by Jesus saying yes completely every time. You see, Jesus, he was swallowed up by death for you. Jesus took 
the, the penalty of sin for you. Jesus was condemned for you. Jesus hung on the cross for all the ways that you say no to God. For all the ways we worship other things. Listen, in your walk with God, there is a place where you learn surrender. And there is a place that you learn to love. You can be scared into surrender. You can be afraid of God to a place where you actually surrender. But there's another place where you learn to love. And that place is when we see and experience the grace of God. We need God's grace. Now it's going to end big. Look at this. It says, Jonah, this is verse 5. He went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. So Jonah preaches his eight-word sermon, drops the mic, walks out. Everybody's covered in repentance and humility, right? He's going to the east. He makes this little hut thing, and he sits under it, getting ready to watch the fireworks. Like he's hoping, oh, that repentance, I don't know if that was good enough. Oh, that repentance, I don't know. Maybe it's a false repentance. Maybe, maybe, maybe God would somehow take it back and not relent, and, and we would see some lightning strike down. I mean, there's nothing that would please him more right now than to watch the city destroyed. You know anyone like that? Nothing would please them more to see their enemies destroyed. Don't nudge. Don't point. Verse 6. Jonah went out of the city, he sat down, he's watching, he's watching. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that he might have shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. Don't you love how he was exceedingly angry and now he's exceedingly glad? He loves his comfort. He loves himself. He loves being in the shade. He loves getting what he wants. He drives on comfort. And so here he is. He's like, yes, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, and it attacked the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. I love how God appoints everything. He appoints the scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head of Jonah, and so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. Oh, God, kill me. Oh, I'm exceedingly glad. Oh, God, kill me. When the sun rose, God appointed the east wind. The sun melted down on him. He's faint. He asked the God that I might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Psalm 115 says, it says that one of the effects of idolatry is blindness. This is the second time God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And the first time, Jonah doesn't say anything. And the second time, Jonah stands up and he says, you're darn right I'm angry. Yeah, I have every right to be angry. 
You're darn right. Listen, the, you send me here. You put me in a fish. I got swallowed by this gassy thing. And then he puked me up on the land. I go to Nineveh. I do what you tell me to do. And you save them all. And then, and then I'm out here and you give me a plant. And then you take it away. And the sun beats down on me. And I can't take it anymore. You do well to be angry, Jonah? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm angry here. That's what he says. That's what he says. Yeah, I'm angry. Listen, he's big enough. God's big enough. Jonah is angry. Right now, look at verse 10. Verse 10. He says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant? You pity the plant that you did not labor, nor did you make grow? And when it came into being in a night and then perished in a night, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left? And by the way, there's so much cattle. God says, you're mad about a plant? Look at your life. God says, you're mad about a plant? Do you do well being angry about that plant? You see, Jonah, Nineveh, it's full of people. It's full of people just like you. People in great need of my grace. In fact, there's 120,000 people that need my grace. There's 120,000 people that need my mercy. There's 120,000 people that need my steadfast love. And if I don't show them grace and I don't show them mercy, there's going to be a massive destruction of life. And I know you don't like them. I know you hate them. But what about the cattle? Don't you even see the cattle as more valuable? I mean, that was a rich commodity. Cattle? If you have cattle, you're wealthy. If you have cattle, you're blessed. If you have cattle, I mean, Jonah could have said, hey, hey, God, why don't you just, why don't you bring me the cattle? Let me take care of it. Don't waste those cattle. It's like us saying, saying, hey, there's a lot of puppies in that city. Don't hurt the puppies. God is saying, are you, ki- are you kidding me? It's a plant. There's 120,000 people that are going to perish without my grace and without my mercy. You don't even care about the cattle? I know they're your enemies, but come on, don't you see that is valuable? And so, and so how does Jonah respond? We don't know. It, it just ends. That's it. I mean, it's the end. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> there, there is no season two. It ends, it ends with a question. 
Because the book is a question for us, for you and me, people like Jonah. We need to really look and say, you care about the plant? Do you care about the he, he says, He says, do you care? There's more perishing people, and all you care about is your identity. There's more perishing people, and all, all you care about is the way that you look. All you care about is your stuff. All you care about is your comfort. All you care about is your kingdom. All you care about is your idols. You've become so nearsighted and so blind to the grace that God has shown you. And I, and I pray that through this book, that as we studied it, that we would find ourselves in a place of surrender. That today we would begin to tell Jesus what we care most about. And be honest. Don't just give them the lip service like you do everybody else. Oh yeah, I love God with all my heart. Actually, he's somewhere down in the middle. I mean, can you be honest with God of what you really, really care about? Can you tell Jesus what you're most upset about? Can you follow the smoke trails in your life so that God would help you put out the fires of idolatry? Today, let us be honest with God because he's big enough to handle it. And he, he can help you remove any blinders. Let's run to Jesus and ask him to give us fresh eyes to see all of the things that distract us from what he really wants us. He wants our heart. He wants us to know him. We need to bask ourselves in his grace so that we can give grace and generosity. We know that through Jesus Christ, we have a new life. He's given himself. He sacrificed himself for you and for me. And we receive it by grace through faith. May that overflow with compassion to one another and to the world. Today, my challenge is just simply to be honest with God with where you're at. Follow the smoke and ask him to put out the fires of idols so that we would be a church of grace and compassion. Lord Jesus, Lord, I confess to you that there's so many times in my life that I long and I hunger for other things. Lord, I am guilty and I am broken and I am in need of your grace. And so Jesus, today I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us see how much grace you've given us that you are a God of new beginnings, you are a God of new starts, that you are a God of new hope. But today we would see and know what it is that we're holding on to so tightly. Jesus, help us let go. Help us be honest. Holy Spirit, lead us. Lead me to be a man of generosity and of compassion and of grace, knowing how much you've given. Lord, help us be a church that is quick to repent and open our hands towards you, God. Jesus, thank you for the cross and the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for the resurrection that I can have a new life. I love you, Lord. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's message. LifePoint Church exists to engage, encourage, and equip through the gospel for the glory of God. Therefore, it is our prayer that the word of God would be an encouragement to your heart and lead you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. If you would like to support the ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at thelifepointconnection.com slash give. May God bless and may your life point to Christ everywhere in every way.